You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. I would just as soon sing that chorus for another 40 minutes and then go home. I love that song. I love the chorus. I, my heart has just been full all morning long. And, and one of the ways that it was so full was just watching this full band up here and leading us in worship and the heartfelt uh, worship that they have. And Zach Herring, who is home from uh, VMI, I think it's VMI, right? I'm all right. Uh, is, is, was up here today. And, and I especially enjoyed watching guys on that row, girls on this row. Uh, third and fifth graders just singing and loving it. Now, if you look around, um, there's not a whole lot of space. And this is after the third and fifth graders, third to fifth graders have left. Uh, at least the students will be back next Sunday. So um, we could have a very full service. Now, one of the things I wanted to suggest, this is off the top of my head. Hope I'm not in trouble for it. But these front rows, look, you, you keep them clear on the first and third Sundays, but who can remember that because of um, communion? Why don't we get as many third and fifth graders up here on this front row as we possibly can? They leave during the, the uh, worship time. If you parents are okay with that, parents, you can come and sit close to the, to the front, which means you guys are going to have to get here early, all of you who sit normally on the second row. Um, so just anything to help us a little bit. We're talking about our space. Let me just encourage you, don't worry about the 80, 85% rule, whatever that is. Just, just get over that stuff, okay? Enjoy the fellowship. These are nice, big, broad chairs, and uh, get close to your, your brothers and sisters in, in Christ. I, I, I wanted to mention one thing going forward uh, in the not-too-distant future, actually starting a week from Wednesday. We're going to have three Wednesday nights in a row where we talk about baptism, membership, uh, the Lord's Supper, and in, in, in a session called Grace Matters. We'll have a panel up here. We're taking questions uh, from you. Neil Manning is taking all of the questions. One of the things I want to promise you is this. We will not answer all your questions. Uh, and there will be things that you disagree with. Guess what? The body of Christ has disagreed about these things forever. <laughs> One of the one of the great sins of the church is there, it, 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 it's, it's extremes, but it's really just a circle. Legalism just ends up in the same place. Legalism and liberalism end up in the same place. Some people can say, uh, it's got to be this, or you don't know. They're so extreme in, in, in the ways that they interpret Scripture in areas where there are a lot of people that disagree. Others, of course, say anything goes. Or, or one thing we know for sure, this isn't real. This is man's idea about God. And they've just put some stuff together that's helpful. We don't want to be either of those. You can't be man, be pan, be wishy-washy. I mean, we, we, we have not only beliefs, but practices here at Grace but let your heart be open because there are going to be some people on the panels. I'm going to be one of them on baptism. And sometimes I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know. And you are going to be certain that you have the answer. But I, I, it's not as clear as we want it to be. If we were in a cave 
hiding from a government who, that, that was intent on killing us. We would get over the fact that this one was baptized as a baby and this one was baptized as an adult. Well, if we stayed there long enough, we'd separate in the groups, you know. But, but initially, we would find the things that bind us together. And there is a whole lot that binds us together with regard to baptism, especially to the Lord's table. We're gonna, when we come forward this morning and commune with the Lord in fellowship and remembrance and participation, 1 Corinthians 10 says, with the body and blood of Christ, and we don't know what that means fully. We're also participating with one another. We're partaking, we're remembering the body of Christ that was was given for us the blood that was spilled and we are connecting with one another. It's one of the beauties of coming forward as we do on the first Sunday. On the third Sunday, we sit and it's passed. There are both ways. Lots of different ways that people serve communion. I don't know of anybody that does it like Jesus did where they reclined at table. I don't think we have room for that. We're going to have to have four or five services in order to get to that place. But... <clears throat> It's important to understand, I can tell you this, evangelicals tend to make far too little of baptism in the Lord's table. And Catholics tend to make far too much of what happens, what occurs when you partake, when you're baptized. Believe ex operata opera. Uh, ex opera, opere, operata, I think is the correct pronunciation, by the work accomplished. In other words, when you partake, you are saved because you partook. When you are baptized, you are saved because you were baptized, even though you were six weeks old, you know, when you were baptized. But we make far too little because we're trying to be, man, I'm not going to have time to preach my sermon. I better stop right now. So let me ask you about you for just a minute. Is your personality such that you would rather be in front of a crowd, blend in with the crowd, or be by yourself? Vance Havner, just a great old preacher. Who even knows that name, Vance Havner? If you ever get a chance to read his stuff, I've got a bunch of books that my father-in-law gave me has dementia, he's in his last days, actually his wife, my, my mother and my ex-mother-in-law, uh, Linda's mother gave me of Marvin's books by Vance Havner. I need to bring him here, let you read. Just an old country preacher. And I remember him saying one time, most people don't like to be alone because when they are, they're in such poor company. So, you know, it's stuff like that all the time. But some of us just prefer to be alone. You know, we like to be alone. And if you don't like to be alone, well, you know, Vance may have a word uh, for you. So, uh, are you passionate about what you believe? Or you find yourself, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm chill with what the majority believe. And whatever the group wants to do, that's what I want. I mean, Americans have long suffered an identity crisis. We long to be these rugged individuals who pave our own road and we make our own way and and yet we were constantly looking around to see if 
see if other people affirm what we're doing. And we want to be part of a movement. We want to be part of a crowd. Some of us, though, are willing even to go against the culture to stand for our beliefs, as long as there are a handful of other people, at least, who are standing with us. But the problem with being radical these days is that the country is split 50-50, and it's hard to identify what's mainstream and what's countercultural. You're typically one direction or another. And even with the current political scene, scene so deeply divided, we want some, at least, to think that we're, we, we have a modicum of ability to think critically, to understand the times, and to live accordingly. We just want other people to think that we know what we're doing. If we have to go against the stream, then so be it. When you think about countercultural groups, look, at it, as much as you can be a hippie and live at home, that's what I was when I was in high school. You know, I was a high school hippie, which is not a full college hippie. But I was against the mainstream. I was against the establishment. I had no idea what the establishment was, but I was against it. Most countercultural groups require the same sort of conformity that they so readily denounce in others. Almost all groups that claim to be different than everyone else are prone to pride and a fair level of disdain for those who don't see as clearly as they do. Most would deny such a mindset, but if you look just below the surface, you will often find an ugliness that serves as a shaky foundation for the beautiful image that the group projects. And if you think I'm talking about you and your group, you're wrong. I'm talking about all of us. It's the way we tend to be when we congregate. It's, it's like that baptism thing, you know. We, we, we get ugly about our beliefs as opposed to others' beliefs. In the end, most group or most people in subgroups are not much different than those in the mainstream. But that shouldn't be surprising to us who are followers of Christ and we believe, we accept the doctrine of the total depravity of man and we recognize that every part of our being is tainted with sin. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. That's not what total depravity means. It means that every part of our thinking, of our emotions, our actions, Everything is tainted with sin. As Christians, that is, as followers of Jesus in faith and deed as well as in word, we are unavoidably countercultural. Even so, we're not afforded the luxury of being prideful or looking down on those who don't share our beliefs and values. In fact, the lengths to which we are called to go as believers <coughs> in our treatment of those who oppose us, it's astonishing. Think about it. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. When, when, when an enemy of Christianity <coughs> comes up and says, you're a Christian, and just knocks you as hard as he can, the Lord says to stand back up and offer the other cheek. Now look, if a fellow brother or sister hits, you in the face, then we need to talk about that. That's a church, that's an issue. That's a church discipline issue. We, there's something that has to be done about that. But if an unbeliever knocks you in the face, turn the cheek. And then we're told to go the extra mile. All this is in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, what, what that recalls is, is, is the requirement for Jews to take a Roman soldier's bags a mile. A Roman soldier could come along and say, hey, Jew, carry my bag for a mile. And by law, he had to carry it. Let me ask you, do you think Jews knew how far a mile was? Exactly. Throw it down and they walk off. And Jesus said, when you get to the end of that mile, and the Roman soldier says, all right, you can, you can drop my bags here. And you're to say, no, 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 I'll, I'll take those another mile. You want to be radical? Live like that. That's the kind of radical life to which God calls us. This year, uh, we're going to spend a good bit of time in the book of Isaiah. And we're going to find as we get into Isaiah that it's just like Genesis and Hebrews that we've covered over the last several years. It takes us all over Scripture. But before we get into Isaiah, we're going to spend a month in Matthew. Don't you love the, the PowerPoint presentations that Scott Shambly prepares for us? prepares uh, for these different series. I told him this morning we may have to change that to a month or more in Matthew. I just, you know, it's just, I don't know. But I, I, I love what he, and it perfectly captures the cross-centered life that Matthew calls the followers of Christ to live. Uh, in truth, we're going to spend time only in the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5 to 7. And, and to be even more specific, we're going to spend two weeks in the Beatitudes, and then we're going to take two weeks toward the latter half of chapter 6, where believers' priorities are delineated for them. Uh, and really, it's kind of, kind of follow-up. It would have been great for Lee to lead that time uh, this morning in a couple of weeks when we talk about where your heart, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. The Sermon on the Mount always presents a challenge for those who are preaching or teaching. Matthew 5 to 7 is, is probably the most discussed, di dissected text in all the Bible, and there is no little controversy surrounding uh, the discussion. Not only will you find commentary after commentary written on the Sermon on the Mount, but you'll also find Commentary, what amounts to commentaries written on, about the commentaries. And, and they're constantly trying to interpret the commentaries who are trying to interpret the sermon. There are so many questions about the Sermon on the Mount. How should it be interpreted? Uh, once again, the, 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 the options are more numerous than you can possibly imagine. Jonathan Pennington, one of the books that I'm reading, is the author of Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, found Mark Twain's words about another subject to be appropriate to, to the mountains of material that have been written about the Sermon on the Mount. I couldn't resist sharing it with you. Twain was saying this about something else, but it so fits. When he said, the researches of many commentators have already thrown much darkness on this subject, and it is probable that if they continue, we shall soon know nothing at all about it. So, like I said, more questions and answers maybe on baptism, not more questions, but some questions nonetheless. There is no doubt that in this sermon, Jesus was instructing his followers about kingdom living, <laughs> which begs the question, is the kingdom future out there in the future or is it present? The answer, of course, is yes. 
it is both we are already living in the kingdom, as the first beatitude will reveal, but the kingdom will not be fully realized until Jesus returns to earth. Jesus, in this sermon, taught with authority, authority, and in fact, he did what only God can do. In the places where he said, you have heard that it was said, in other words, on Mount Sinai, where the law was given, Jesus says, on one mountain you heard this, the law of God, but I say to you, there's something more to it than that. Now, who can do that? Only God. And <clears throat> Jesus was saying, God is amongst you, and the Pharisees knew what he was saying. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So have you been liable to judgment this past week? I would I, probably. <clears throat> well, probably the person in the car is not my brother. That's what all I can say. When you hear Jesus preach this sermon, it's quickly evident that no human being can fulfill <clears throat> his demands. And so, many don't think that the Sermon on the Mount is really applicable to us because the standard is too high. That's just one of the many views about this sermon. Indeed, though, as believers, we long to live kingdom lives, yet to do so requires a shift away from the cultural, accepted ways of, of, of cultural thinking. No matter where you find yourself on, on this scale, with regard to the culture with politics, social activities, no matter where you are on the scale. As we read through Matthew 5, 1 through 12, uh, we're going to spend two weeks in that, determine whether Jesus' teaching supports or conflicts with some of the attitudes of today that are given. And, and great advice that is given to people, or at least we think it's great advice, things like be true to yourself. We need to take this country back for God. <laughs> Be brave. Rise up. Do your part. God will do the rest. Fight for your rights. I think you'll find that the way Jesus calls us to think and live is upside down from the world's accepted modes of thinking that go off in, 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 in myriads of directions. So we're going to read Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Our text is this morning. We're just going to focus on 1 through 6, but we want to read all of this section uh, of, the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, which gives us the beatitude. So if you would, please stand, as is our custom, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. <laughs> Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's essentially teaching his disciples, and there are a whole lot of other people who are hearing. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, even just reading these words, we're drawn to confess uh, our misconception that the Christian life is the good life as the world sees it. And we confess our disappointment with you and our frustration with you when things don't go the way that they should. We confess our, our disappointment for not being further along in this life and in this world than we thought we should be all along. Lord, as we're going to see, we're so grateful that we can read these things and say, oh, oh, I see in my heart where I'm in the wrong in my thinking. Thank you for revealing your truth, your word to us. And Lord, we pray that it will wash over us this day. May we be more like Jesus, who said these beautiful words, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. <clears throat> the, the best way to hear and believe and apply the Sermon on the Mount is to recognize that we can never live anything close to the way that God calls us to later on, like going the extra mile and, and, and working on not only the outward manifestations of the sin in our heart, but, but just dealing with the sin in our heart as well. There is no way we can live anywhere close to how Jesus commanded us to live until we first focus on the Beatitudes or <clears throat> the blessings, the eschatological Blessings for those whose lives are characterized by the attitudes described in these first 12 verses. Now, eschatological blessing simply means it's something that we look forward to, but, but some of it has filtered into our lives today. There's a whole lot going on here. There are promises of the future kingdom, um, but they're also partially realized in the here and now, in the present kingdom. You have, no doubt, often heard that that the word blessing in these verses is tantamount to happiness, uh, which means that the verses could be translated, happy is the one who is poor in spirit. But this is, this is the point. And, and look, we, we, we could form a better understanding of what Jesus means when he says blessed or blessed is this person from several angles, um, the most important of which is the vocabulary. The, the, the word translated blessed is from the Greek makarios, uh, which has strong connotations of salvation. It, is, it, it, it refers to those people who have been brought into the family of God. Matthew uses this word several times in his gospel, and it always points to that. Just one of the examples, you're gonna, if you're in home group this week, you're going to look at maybe some other Examples, but Matthew 13, 16 is just one of the several places that makarios is used. 
Jesus was explaining the parable of the sower to his disciples. They're like, what? You know, Jesus said a sower went out and this good seed, seed fell here, 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 and here. And only one place did it really grow. And Jesus said, I was explaining this in parables so that the words of Isaiah 6 will be fulfilled. Hearing they will not hear, understand. Seeing they will not know what they're seeing. So the truth of the gospel is hidden from people. I don't like that idea any better than you do, except that it's what God says that he does. And so consequently, we should be careful about saying what I just said. I don't like this truth, but it's there. So I guess I have to accept it. It's God's way. And when he's giving these beatitudes, he is saying, blessed is the one or saved is the one. Uh, in, in addition to, to, to the clues that we get about meaning from grammar, we would understand, look, from, from not only from the word, but from our experience as well, that the Christian life is not always a happy life. Um, happy are those who, are, who mourn. Happy are those who are persecuted. What am I missing here that, you know, that Christian life's a happy life? So if we want to mess with the translation, it would be more accurate to say saved are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In addition to understanding the vocabulary, it's also helpful to spend just a moment uh, on structure. Most of the Beatitudes are written with a future tense verb. Like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Indicating that the blessing of those who mourn will be fully realized when they stand before Jesus. There's comfort now. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it will be fully realized when Christ returns. Uh, that doesn't mean there is no present comfort. But it signifies an already, not yet, aspect to this blessing. So the first and the eighth Beatitudes in verses 3 and 10 are written in the present tense. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is already theirs. <laughs> He's identifying. He's not challenging, hey, want to be part of the kingdom of God? It's for the poor in spirit. You, you think you can do that? That's not what he's doing. He's identifying. Verse 10, the same blessing applies for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll get to verse 10 next week. But the grammar in verses 3 and 10 inform, they, they form a, a, an inclusio. Uh, tie in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount together. Beginning and the end. That symmetry that you so often see in Scripture. In verse 3, the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is present with those who are spiritually poor. Now, if you're interested, there's a whole lot of context that, that, that surrounds this verse. We find it in Luke 6.20, Matthew 11, 2 through 6, Isaiah 61, where Jesus said the gospel is preached to the poor. Uh, they're all part of the greater context of Jesus meant when he proclaimed this blessing. But just to say in short, he was saying that those who come to him, those who come to the Lord come with absolutely no claim to spiritual resources 
of their own. And those people are members of the kingdom of heaven. If we were writing, if you were writing Beatitudes, you think you would write them like this? I doubt it. I doubt most of us would write Beatitudes in this manner. We would say something like, blessed are those who do good to their fellow man. Or, blessed are the religious, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, both of those are indicators of uh, that this person is a believer, uh, a pious person, uh, a person who, who does good for others. But, but Jesus did not put legal requirements on those who would be known as saved. He didn't put legal requirements on the blessing of heaven. In fact, a very short time later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say in Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, what's he saying? Uh, you, you don't have a chance. No one has a chance. Your righteousness can never be good enough. So the righteousness, that kind of righteousness has to come from somewhere else. And it comes from Jesus. Again, that's part of what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, setting this ridiculously high standard. But he's not saying that believers are not to, to, to desire this kind of lifestyle. Um, so we have to start, though, with this. We must come to the Lord with no claims of goodness, but rather with a posture of humble repentance from the sin that has separated us from God. To be poor in spirit is to bow before God without excuse or self-justification. Can you possibly do that? Those of you who are married, can you possibly say, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Or do you, is it absolutely necessary that you also say, but you know, <laughs> you fill in the blank. I'll, the microphone is here. No. But, look, just, what does it mean? What does it mean to just come to the Lord? What does it mean, children, to go to your parents and say, what I did was wrong, I'm sorry. Instead of, well, Lord, I might have been okay if it hadn't been for this person or that person. I, maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. <laughs> I mean, look around, Lord. Poverty of spirit has nothing to do with comparisons. Nor does it have anything to do with self-pity. There is an epidemic of self-pity in our land, is there not? Tell me that you haven't felt sorry for yourself this past week. Well, you said, not me. Well, I bet you were angry. It's the same. It comes from the same root. You can't go into the Lord. Being poor in spirit is not a, not a sense of, well, I'm just no good. But rather, one who is poor in spirit, it's, it's not passive. He actively acknowledges his or her sin and need for God's grace. This can only be done, though, by one who is saved. Saved are those. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 flows naturally into verse 4. In fact, I'm going to talk more about this next week. 
Uh, but these are like four pairs. Three and four go together. Five and six, seven and eight, nine and ten. One flows into uh, another. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. Jeffrey Gibbs uh, points out that Jesus now promises to fill that human emptiness. We've come with complete poverty of spirit, and now Jesus promises to fulfill human emptiness. In this first stage of kingdom living, we mourn. And what he's talking about here is we mourn over sin, our own sin, sin in the church, and sin in the nation. One day, we will be comforted in ways that frankly are unimaginable today. My Uncle Jerry uh, lost his wife, Kathy, six months ago to cancer. I, I know a handful of you know Jerry and, and Kathy. When I see him as I did a few days ago, I, I, I just want to tell him <clears throat> it's okay. Time will ease the pain. <coughs> it will, I know from experience, but I also know better than to tell him that. In the first place, it's, it's not what he needs to hear. Even though, furthermore, even though the pain eases, do we ever fully get over the sorrows of this life? Do we ever get over the injustices that have been done to us? Do we ever get over the betrayals? The loss? Not really. But the day will come when all tears are dried and unspeakable joy will be the only sense we ever know. Ever thought about the fact that in this present life, intense joy can only be sustained so long in our lives? Look, we can sustain intense grief far longer than we can intense joy. We just run out of energy. The endorphins crash and so do we. You know, it's like, I, I, okay, that was great, but I got to have some normalcy. We can go around in grief for a long time, but intense joy only lasts so long. I, I'm not sure if we will live in a state of continuous joy in the new heavens and the new earth, but I do know one thought that will never cross our mind. You know, things are good, but all good things must come to an end. I wonder when the wheels are going to run off. I, is this, I'm going to wake up from this. Those, that thought won't even cross our mind. Just imagine that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But we see comfort in other ways. Look, it, the comfort comes, but in the meantime, mourn over sin as followers of Jesus, and He will comfort you with His forgiveness <coughs> and acceptance. This is the promise, but are we not prone to seeking comfort in other ways? What do we talk about? Comfort food? Comfort binge on Netflix or whatever, you know. We, we've got our ways of bringing comfort to us. Comfort, round of golf, comfort. I'm going to need comfort tomorrow when the Saints whip the Panthers, I'm afraid, tonight. So, if you want some cheesecake, I'm your man. You know, let's go. Let's go get it. 
why is it that, that we're so prone to turn to sinful and meaningless pursuits to help mitigate the pain in this phase of human life? Do you entertain and even glorify sin? Look, I'm, I'm just as prone as you are, but the show is so well done. It's so realistic. And you find yourself wanting this guy to kill another guy. Do you seek and accept glory that belongs only to God? Do you applaud efforts of others that are entirely self-centered? Not that you should refuse to recognize and encourage achievement in others. <coughs> But is your mindset that you exalt human effort over a heart that appreciates the beautiful gifts that God has given to others, even unbelievers? Look, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not suggesting we ought to be encouraged, and we're going to a women's basketball game at Campbell soon, Tuesday night maybe, and we're going to be cheering these guys as hard as we can, and we're going to say, yeah, look at what the Lord has done. But that's the point. We ought to say, look at the beautiful gifts that God has given these people. Somehow it all gets convoluted. And one of the things that helps us to process it all is to mourn over sin. Our own sin first and foremost. Then sin in the church and then the nation's sin. We have a lot of sin about which to mourn, do we not? Remember though, the Beatitudes are not primarily intended to challenge us to godly repentance, but rather to identify those who follow Jesus. <laughs> Even though the Beatitudes are more statements of fact than admonition, though, Jesus' sermon surely challenges us to live godly lives. Jesus was saying, men, women, this is characteristic of my followers. Saved are those who mourn, <clears throat> for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is better translated here, lowly. Look, we spend so much time saying, meek isn't weak. You know, Jesus was strong. It's true, but there came a time when Jesus stopped talking. He stopped resisting. <clears throat> and we're pointed to that time over and over as believers. To live accordingly. Look, with apologies to Hamilton lovers of Rise Up, we must acknowledge that while our lowly state that is referenced in verse 5 is akin to the spiritual poverty of verse 3, this future blessing is for those who are often oppressed in life. We all come from different places, and, and, and some have been more oppressed than others for, 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 for many different reasons. This is good news. If you, have been, if you are the most oppressed person in this room, this is good news for you. This is God pronouncing a blessing on you. This is Jesus saying, blessed are you. You will inherit the earth. This is calling us to faith. It's calling us to believe that, that what we do here and now matters for all eternity, and that one day, God is going to take care of all of it. 
our responsibility is more often to trust God than it is to resist the visible forces that are against us. Now, resist Satan. He says it very clearly. And I'm going to have more to say about this, so, so just hold on. Resist Satan, but trust God when people oppose you. The blessing that is promised um, to believers is more future than present. This third beatitude is closely connected with Psalm 37, 10 through 11. Same language. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. That, that verse just <coughs> blew my mind. Though you look carefully, the wicked is no more. You don't have to worry about it. But the meek, the lowly, shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. While it is right and good, it is right that we seek justice on this earth. Since scripture is replete with calls for us to do so. Even so, the promise here is that one day the lowly will inherit the earth. In the meantime, the third beatitude flows right into the fourth. Verse 6, blessed are those, saved are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who seek to be justified by the, by the law care very much about appearances. The humble who were saved by grace care about what is right. And so there is indeed a desire in the hearts of Jesus' followers for social justice. But there is an even greater desire than just for the wrong simply to be made right. There is a desire for Jesus to reign fully, for God to reign fully, and to come, his kingdom to come in righteousness and power. The disciples wouldn't have fully understood this at the point, but God had come and he was speaking to them. He was crucified, buried, raised, and ascended back to the Father. But he is going to come again and reign in righteousness and power. Jesus was pronouncing blessing on those who were saved. Who were the saved? Those who put no trust in their own goodness, but rely solely on the merits of Christ. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied in Jesus. It's impossible for believers to read the Beatitudes and find that they have no desire to be more like the blessed men and women that Jesus described. So here's the question. When we look at this, this, this description, by the way, just to make the connection, parables were often the same way. We, we always go to parables and think, oh, this is beautiful, simple teaching. Wonder what God is saying. If, if you think it's simple, you probably haven't read them very carefully. They're not simple. A lot of the parables weren't simple. And Jesus said, I speak in parables so that those who are not saved won't understand it. But those who are saved will eventually get it. More often than not, Jesus was identifying these are sheep, these are goats, these are the saved, these are the lost. And the Pharisees would think, wow, that's a really interesting story. Hey, wait a minute. You've got me in this column over here. And they would be angry with them. The Beatitudes are identifying whether we belong to God or not. How do you know you belong to God? 
because you have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You trust the promises of God that all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are blessed in all of these ways. And unfortunately, most of us spend our time feeling sorry for ourselves or getting angry or (coughs) being entertained and fulfilled by the world. And all of this fulfillment is found in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you have been thinking, well, you know, heaven, maybe, maybe not. Look, I guess I'm, I'm as good as, I've got as good a chance as anybody, I suppose. No, you don't. None of us has a chance apart from Christ. None of us can be good enough. This day, cry out to the Lord saying, Oh, Lord, I come with no claims for my own righteousness at all. I am a sinner and I need to be saved. I believe that Jesus died and I believe that in my heart when I give my life and completely to him. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect after we make that decision. Far from it. This is what we're supposed to look like. Ask the Lord to make this true about you. When you pursue Jesus, rather than trying to, okay, I'm just going to be humble. I'm going to be meek. I'm going to hunger and thirst. Just spend time with Jesus. Spend time with him. The more time you're around him, the more like him you will be. Allison and I, more and more alike all the time. Constantly we complete one another's sentences. I'll say, I think I ought to. And she says, go clean the room, the bedroom. Like She completed, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not like that at all. Uh, it's good stuff where we are just more and more becoming one flesh. By the way, can I just say this? And I'm sorry, I know we got to go. we got to move here. For you young couples, this is not God's idea of one flesh, two boards stuck together. This is one flesh. And this comes with friction. This is a lot easier than this. Just let the Lord bind you together. Let the Lord bind us together. As we come to this table, that's what he's doing. He's binding our hearts to him, and he's binding us to one another. We understand the table to be a means of grace. There are lots of ways that God uses to graciously interact with us and and form our minds and to change our lives. And this is what I say about this table it means so little to so many evangelicals. We just believe, well, this is a symbol only. And yet there's this really provocative language in Scripture about the table. We don't believe that the elements become the blood, the body and blood of Christ. But we do believe that Jesus meets with us in a special way when we meet him at this table. And we come together with one another. So and I'm going to pray for us. Um, And then I'm going to ask the elders, deacons, worship team to come forward and we will begin our time at the table. Our Father, it's so tempting.
to say, oh, I feel so ashamed because I fall so far short of this, um, this life to which you have called me. And at the same time, this is the blessing you have pronounced on those who are saved. And you have called us to Jesus and we have believed. And the world thinks we're crazy for doing what we're about to do. But Lord, with all of our hearts, we believe. And, and some of us must say at this time and I at other times, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, we're grateful for the body and blood of Jesus that was given for us. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We thank you that you've called us to this table to remind us of the sacrifice that was made for us. And also, uh, as a means of grace, you bind us even more closely to yourself. We need that. We confess it. We expect it because you said it. Uh, may we come in faith this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.